If he played the way he'd played that year, all the other years up till now, then like I say, you'd have seen an incredible amount of um, tournaments won. We're sort of like a big three and then sort of a kind of guy on the side who's like, hey guys, can I join? <laughs> I've got two Olympics, no. guys. That's what got me into tennis in the first place. The kind of just the, the style and the, the elegance with which he played. I mean, a lot. Of, you can see a lot of players who are on the tour now had modelled their game a lot on, on what he did. If I were younger and I were looking at Zverev and thinking, oh, I quite like him, that would have put me right off. Welcome back to the Getting a Grip podcast with your co-host Ben and Merlin. Um, again, thousands of miles apart. How are we doing, Merlin? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Uh, uh, i tell you what, it's been a long week, but another interesting week in tennis. Uh, and, well, as, as we've seen, there's, there's a lot of drama to talk about, which we love, gives us content. Gives us content, it does. Um, yeah, so as per usual, we'll round up the latest kind of news in tennis for the last week or two. I think the most appropriate place to start is with the man himself, Andy Murray, notching up his 700th ATP win yesterday at Indian Wells, uh, overcoming Taro Daniel, the guy who overcame him in the Australian Open. I'm sure he probably would have preferred it to be the other way around. But, He's you know, overcome him for the second time out of three encounters this year. I think that's the incredible part about this one. Oh, I didn't even know that. But I'm sure he'd rather have had that win at the Australian Open rather than Indian Wells. But you take what you can get. So Exactly. What, exactly. Are, our, um, what are our thoughts on kind of Murray's position in the kind of the world order, shall we say? I know we've talked about the big three before, or I think you prefer to refer to it as the big four. Um, thank you, thank you. This kind of, I suppose, this cements his status a bit more in that big four, if we're talking about it in kind of general mm. historical terms. Oh, big time. Um, so what are your thoughts on kind of, yeah, where he's at at the moment and obviously teaming up with his uh, old coach, Lendo, again, back with his ex. Yeah. Can never, can never go ex. back too many times. Yeah, so I think... Uh... I think it's good news, first of all, that uh, that he's back with Lendl. I think, um, you know, obviously there there was news that came out uh, that he admitted himself in interviews that even under Lendl he probably trained too hard. And I think think that, yeah, obviously that's an issue. Uh, I think, as you rightly said as well earlier, um, as we were talking about this, um, that Tony Nadal even said that he was training too hard under Lendl. And I think, I think when you've got probably one of the world's toughest toughest tennis men telling you that you're training too hard I think that well a it shows how good that self-motivation is but uh, and shows what a character Murray is but also tells you you probably need to slow down just a little bit but um no I think I think it's good news I think I think Lendl uh, developed his game changed his game monumentally during the time that Murray was the well he's the top of the world and and Lendl was in charge during that unbeatable season that Murray had that one year where Murray won everything um, and capped it off with that ATP Tour finals win as well so yeah like I say I, it's just uh, it's just good news in many in many ways yeah I remember what, watching that um, that season unfold in 2016 thinking right, this guy could go on to win like many many grand slams he, he got to the the final of the French Open I think did he win? The, I don't know if he won the first set, but he was right in that final against Djokovic. And then, mm. um, I don't know, just see, 
as in many finals against Djokovic, he seemed to just like run out of steam almost when he missed his chance. I think at the end of the first or second set, it just seemed to deflate him mentally. Um, but yeah, I like think that's... we've always known that Murray has had less of the mental game compared to Djokovic. Though, yeah, I mean, but that, that's not <laughs> that's not actually much of a criticism really because Djokovic's mentality is you know elite. Like him and Nadal, probably you would say are the got the strongest mentality of any tennis players maybe in the history of the Big game. Time. But mm. yeah, that, that, that 2016 season was just incredible for Murray. It feels like, <laughs> doesn't feel that long ago, but at the same time, it, it's been like five or six years. Um, I actually remember the start of the 2017 season thinking, yeah, again, that he's going to, he could rack up like at least a couple of majors in this, this season. And I actually spoke to, um, I don't know if you know this Sky Sports pundit, Barry Cowan, but I, I bumped into him in the airport. Um, I think this was before like the Qatar Open or whatever it is, Doha Open. Oh, yeah. And we were discussing this and thinking, yeah, it's going to be like him and Djokovic are just going to dominate this year. And then mm. lo and behold, obviously you had that injury in, in the background and then it all came to a, all came to its head in uh, Wimbledon in that quarterfinal against Sam Quarry. And then <laughs> four years have passed since and he's still on that road to recovery, I suppose, if you'd call it that. Well, this is it. I think I think if it weren't for the injury, then we'd have seen Murray really racking up some numbers, not only to become one of the greatest of all time, but, but to really rival, um, you know, the big three before him, as it were. Uh, but that, like I say, that that's provided all goes well in terms of injury, because if he played the way he played that year, all the other years up till now, then, like I say, you'd have seen an incredible amount of um tournaments won and he's he's a very clever individual he's a very clever sportsman Andy Murray because he learns from what's gone before him his at the start of his career he built and he built and he built and that like I say that all led to that impressive year but unfortunately that that training probably led to um you know a, an exacerbation of that injury so potentially it might have not been bad been as bad if if he um if he hadn't trained as hard, but at the same time, like that, that injury did persist. I believe he admitted that that injury persisted, um, you know, long before that year as well. It was, it was something that was very, very much, um, away in the background. Um, yeah, there you I, go. Like, I, that, that I wanted to kind of, yeah, ask you about his general style of play. Obviously it has, it's brought him amazing success. So it's, it's hard to, the ultimate grinder. Really. Yeah. But it is, like clearly it takes a massive toll on your body and especially mm. the way he does have a similar style to Djokovic but obviously the way they actually move is is very different Murray's is there's a lot more impact on his joints you know specifically his his kind of hip area with that like sharp change of direction so I was just wondering like do you think can he still have success with that style of play now given the kind of the metal hip that he's got um or does he need to change his style to be a little bit more aggressive and if he does, is he actually going to do that? Because he obviously loves to play that style of the game so much. That's kind of what brings him satisfaction is being able to grind opponents down. It, does he need to change that style of play? And if he does, will he even want to do it? Well, I think when you're comparing the movement of Djokovic versus Murray, I think your key aspect is the ability to slide or to stop. Murray likes to stop. 
you know, much of a much more of a hard impact on the joints. Whereas obviously, like when stop, you see Djokovic, I I like <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly I the same. But... Just, I'm scared to do it. Like, but that's that's it. We we were raised and we have played, especially in the UK, and this might be very much um, Murray's shortfall here as well on a hard court where you can't slide, and if you try to slide, you're probably going to lose an ankle or something. So. This is this is the difference. Whereas you see Djokovic sliding around the court on most most occasions, um, it is a technique in itself, um, and it it gives you some great images. Um, like I say, the the acrobatics that Djokovic is capable of and his agility is incredible. But you know, Murray's Murray's just not that sort of player. And like like I say, whilst whilst you might want him to change it, you know, in in aid of preservation of his hip, um, I'm not necessarily saying he needs to learn to slide more. He just needs to shorten the points. Uh, which is something you've seen Nadal and Federer um, have a good go at in the in the later stages of their careers. Um, you know, it, it's perfectly doable. And like a, a champion like Murray, he's going to find a way to make something work if he knows that that's what he needs to do. But I think he feels comfortable playing in that same style as he always has, even with his new resurfaced hip. And if he's comfortable playing at that level, and playing that style of game, then then you've got to hand it to him as as the professional tennis player who knows his body better than anyone. Um, then you've got to hand it to him that that's the decision he's going to make. Also, on this point as well, if I have to listen to another commentator say Andy Murray rolling back the years as he's winning a tennis match, I'm going to have some real issues. I know, I understand he's come a long way in his recovery, and I know he's not at his best uh, that he's ever played, but rolling back the years, no, 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 no. Don't ever discount Murray. Don't ever take him out. He will always be a threat. Yeah, I think maybe it, maybe it's the commentator sort of wishing that they could take themselves back to that time where, you know, I wish. He, he, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer were, were all going at it, and they were all in, you know, like top physical shape but you know it's just not realistic anymore sadly you know age does catch up with us all um indeed yeah i think actually that is a good point you make about the style of play maybe it's not necessarily switching from just being an all that kind of grinder to just straight out aggression it's more just tweaking his game a little bit to cut the point short where he can because you've obviously seen that with nadal like he still has that game at the baseline where he you know he's, he's got that consistency and that ability mm. to mentally wear down his opponent but He's coming to the, the net a lot more, cutting the points short. And I think Murray has got the volleying game, certainly. You've seen it in, oh, in yeah. doubles. He's won, um, obviously, he won Queen's doubles. And he, he's a fantastic doubles player and volley. That was fresh out of the recovery as well. Exactly. So that is um, certainly like a, a tactic that could work for him. And I think I, I'd imagine you see that that will uh, happen more, especially with him teaming up with Lendl and going through that kind of like training block. Mm. America over so. the next few months I'm, I'm hoping that's what we see and I think leading into Wimbledon because obviously he's skipping the French Open or the clay court season yeah. Um, yeah. that is that's the style that's going to give him the best chance I, I would have thought well that's another aspect of it you know you cut the points short but you also cut your season shorter you, you reduce the amount of tournaments you're participating in you pick and choose what you like and, and Federer sort of championed this idea I suppose uh, at the top of the game and, and picking and choosing what you want to play and, and, mm. and where you want to focus your attention on but let's take the clay season for example that is grind central Murray loves a grind even that might be too much for his body, especially when he's preserving, picking the tournaments that he's going to really want to play and make a deep run, hopefully, in the grass court season. And let's face it, as a British fan, that's what we're really looking for. Yeah, I think he's he's basically doing the opposite of what Nadal's going to do, I think. Nadal's 
going to go all in on the uh, the clay court season as is mm. as is his want as is appropriate. Um, and then Murray will yeah obviously Murray number fifteen that. yeah number fifteen and then obviously then probably skipping the grass court season. Um, yeah, as we said, like, better news for Murray. <laughs> yes, because he's definitely going to win Wimbledon. Um, he's I don't know like he. If he gets some solid consistency in terms of tournaments in the lead up to it, who knows? Like, I think even it could happen. once he gets to, if he can get to like the fourth round or quarter final stage, then it's anyone's game really, because obviously he's been there and done it before and he's got that experience. Then who knows? You know, don't rule anything out. Exactly. <laughs> Especially given the Dahl is literally like unbeaten already at the start of this year, which yeah, as mm. we said before, hardly hardly anyone or no one saw coming. Okay, so let's move on to another one of the the big four. I'll keep I'll keep calling it the big four just to, just to make you feel good. No, I, I sort of I I agree with that. Um, well, it's sort of like a big three, and then sort of a kind of guy on the side who's like, "Hey guys, can I join? <laughs> I've got two Olympics, no. guys, and three grand. Yeah, more slams. than the others. True. Yeah, he's got that over them. At least, yeah." Okay, so yeah, um, Federer, he is obviously the elderly statesman of the big four, um, and he's been off at, at the tour since that, since he got bageled in that horrible match that was against, uh, who was it, Kurt Herbert, I can't even say his name correctly, Kerr, Kerkatz? Kerkatz. Right, okay, that's, that's definitely the correct Polish pronunciation that we've got there. Um, so yeah, that horrible, that horrible quarterfinal was it against Herkatch, and yeah. oof, we haven't seen him since then. And obviously, he was dealing; he must have been dealing with the injury at that time as well, which is kind of horrible. But you can't really, you can't really talk mm. about it while you're in the tournament because then everyone just thinks, oh, you're making excuses and all that. And yeah, fair enough for kind of keeping it under wraps. Um, so yeah, we haven't seen him since then, which is how many months is that now? It must be like. Maybe like eight months or something. Um, mm, a long time, last year. a long road to recovery. But clearly, mm. he's still got the kind of the motivation and drive to come back. I'd imagine mm. seeing what Nadal's doing is definitely going to give him a, a, a little spark there. As much as they're kind of more on friendly terms now than maybe in the the early years of their careers, he definitely you know that still lights the kind of competitive fire in his belly. Um, so he's still, yeah, he's got that motivation to come back and go through that long rehab again, which is, I mean, mm. he's gone through multiple now. I think most notable was probably that um, 2016 injury when he came back and then came straight back in and won the Aussie Open in t- at the start of 2017. Um, but I think it's only, yeah, it's only going to get more difficult as, as the years go on. Um, so, yeah, he's just come back on court, I think. Only playing with his wife, but, you know, it's it's something. I think you could probably relate to that. Um playing many games of tennis with your with your girlfriend. There's a lot to be said for that. So it's looking like, unfortunately, he is going to miss Wimbledon. Um, clearly, if if he could avoid that, then mm. he would. But it must be, um, you know, a serious, serious rehab that he's going to go through if he can't make it back for Wimbledon. Um, how do you kind of see his year playing out when he comes back? It's really hard to predict, isn't it? But do you do you envisage him being able to win any more tournaments, like on the ATP tour at least, or is this kind of is this it now? He's just he's gonna come back and compete and then realise that 
his chances of winning a tournament are, you know, quite slim and then maybe just call it quits come, you know, Wimbledon next year, maybe. I think it very much depends on the physical recovery. Um, for example, with, with Murray, he's Murray's had one of the most major surgeries possible in the game and he's come back and been able to play at a high level, oh, not making necessarily God, that, deep That documentary runs. was grim, wasn't it? That. It is, yeah, it is grim, and it's heartbreaking as well because you mm. see how much someone wants it. But in order to avoid going too far back into the Murray topic, I think if if Federer emulates the same level of recovery, then I think there's a good chance that you know he'll make some, uh, you know, the occasional deep run in a tournament, perhaps. But I'm not so sure we're talking about given his age, obviously a lot older than uh, uh, Murray in terms of a sportsman. Um, I think that we're thinking that it could possibly be the end in terms of um winning tournaments but not necessarily the end in winning matches again it's you know you can never write a champion like federer out so uh, i think we'll very much it will very much depend on how far back to what we'll say is normality um he can get his physical recovery to mm. i think i mean i can i'm sure i can speak for like most tennis fans when we say we want him back like his his oh, yeah. style of play is well from from a personal perspective, that's what got me into tennis in the first place. The kind of just the the style and the, the elegance with which he played. I mean, a lot. Of, you can see a lot of players who are on the tour now had modelled their game a lot on on what he did. You know, like obviously oh, Dimitrov's an obvious example, but there are there are many. You see a Mini lot fed. of a lot of one handed backhands around the tour these mm. days, and that's no coincidence. Um, so yeah, we'd all we'd all love to see him back and competing especially we don't want to see something like you know that that end of that Wimbledon quarterfinal where it was just like this isn't this isn't the Federer that we know like this is this just doesn't feel yeah. right <laughs> how can you, our champion of Wimbledon getting like almost demolished or embarrassed whatever you want to call it on centre court it's just that uh, just doesn't feel right so yeah we all want to see him back and being able to at least go on you know like one one or two runs in a tournament we think he does tend to struggle a little bit in the earlier rounds, as most players do. Obviously, you've, you've, especially if you've not done any kind of major tournaments in the build-up to it, it takes a couple of matches to really yeah. kind of get into a into a groove. Um, once he gets through those kind of early rounds, he is capable of really going on a, a good run. And especially like we saw that when he came, came straight back from the injury in 2016 into that Aussie Open, and once he got going and passed those first few rounds, it was like it was like watching vintage Federer again. Not saying that's going to happen this time, but he is capable of that that kind of run. I think from what you said, there's there's two key points coming out of that, and I think the first of which is, um, you know, like as I was saying about physical recovery, if he can make it back to some sense of normality to get the match practice, as you're saying, then yeah, you know, we're going to see we're going to see a resurgent Federer, but. And the second point I was going to mention, I think at some point we have to let go. The tour needs to survive any one individual or any four individuals or any three individuals, depending on how we're going with rating, obviously, those top players. So, you know, like tennis will endure even when they are not playing. They may be commentating, they may be coaching, you know, that'll be great. And that will be great stuff to see as well. But, um, you know, we do need to turn our focus onto these these newer players as well. And uh, to be to be honest, I think that might that might lead to some of the frustration. Who can get a crowd going when all the crowds are supporting all the vintage players? Yeah, I think 
it may the, the previous generation of fans may have I don't know if they would have felt similar <clears throat> when you had like the likes of Agassi and Sampras coming towards the end that kind of legacy moment almost where Federer defeated Sampras at Wimbledon and everyone was like mm. Mm, this this is it this is the changing of the guard it, it feels like it's been a lot more protracted than that this time because the longevity yeah. of these players these days is so much greater than it was previously so it's like they're they're managing to get the most out of themselves even into their mid to late 30s and you've got <clears throat> these younger guys who are now not actually that young by kind of like traditional standards they're in you know their mid 20s maybe late 20s now still yeah. really kind of battling to take that mantle on so that's not helping <laughs> in terms of that transi- transition of fans from you know those vintage players as we call them to this kind of new generation um but yeah, I think you're right. We do need to kind of, we do need to let go. Um, and I think we've, we've had plenty of time to kind of get our head around this now. Like these guys are kind of, I call it, I don't know, the final stretch of their career, whatever. It is kind of being elongated, but we know that it, the end is going to come relatively soon. And I mean, people need to kind of find their new champion, if you like, um, amongst these kind of new generation of players. Um, it is sad though. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's gonna be so sad to see the day when Federer retires. Like, it's it's like a piece of your your childhood almost. Like, yeah, right there. And um, yeah, and it's gonna be sad, but it will happen relatively soon, I'd imagine. So you need to kind of prepare. The passion yourself. with which you're speaking about Federer suggests you feel about him the way I feel about Murray. So yeah, there you go. Everyone's got their everyone's got their allegiance. Everyone's got their champion. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got their champion. And even now, when I'm like, when I'm watching Nadal have an amazing start to the year, I'm like, my kind of, I don't know, not necessarily respect, because I've always respected him, but my um, admiration for him is growing. But I still feel like every time he wins the tournament, I'm like, ah, it's like almost like a, a yeah. front against Federer. I'm like, oh, this, this, like, this hurts me, even though Nadal is like an amazing player and I respect him. Like, so much and can understand why he has loads of fans it's just everyone's got their allegiance haven't they everyone's got to sit in one kind of tribe or camp um but yeah we've got to find we've got to find new ones um i don't really I think that's a topic for another day yeah that's a topic for another day is who is going to be our new champion i think we can we can certainly have a have a nice spread of players i mean for me a young canadian is potentially the front runner oh yes I like, I like and that's too. the hint you're going to get that's yeah. the hint you're going to get I think I might be in the same camp as you there if, if we're thinking about the same person this might be a bit it depends <laughs> it depends we've got a couple person. of young Canadians coming up haven't we so true, yeah, you know, I'm, absolutely, I'm, a, I'm a happy bunny about that that's for, that's for a future episode yeah one of the front runners if you like or one of the, the more well known names of that new generation is a Mr Alexander Zverev um, got himself into a little bit of hot water recently um, with the small matter of smashing an umpire's chair, of which he's now described as the biggest mistake of his career and the worst moment of his life. I mean, I'm, I don't know whether that's... That's a fair statement. I don't know whether worst moment of your life is... Accurate, no, maybe, I think I that's know. a fair statement. Yeah, you I think, think it, it's you a think fair statement. I think, I think when you're talking about... So what we were literally just discussing will be a, a topic for a future episode. When when fans are looking at players and looking at all of these these next gen people coming through, 
you know, I mean, they're not even next gen really at the moment. They're just the, they're consolidated as, you know, like the stable few on that top 10 of the tool. But if I were younger and I were looking at Zverev and thinking, oh, I quite like him, that would have put me right off. So I think I think they need to be very aware that these sorts of tantrums and these sorts of outbursts, whilst I'm not saying that the big four in the old day, you know, they didn't have them, especially in their early stages of the career. I don't know, you used to remember Murray. He used to be screaming and swearing all the time when he God was younger. did my head and I was like, is this guy ever going to learn to keep his emotions Keep a lid on it, yeah, 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 yeah. And he and he really struggled, yeah. So and even Federer in his early days, and people were very easily forgetting uh, about Federer as well. He was exactly the same. He really struggled uh, to keep a lid on his emotions in the early days, and that that stardom. But they have to be careful because you have a camera on you at all times, especially these days. So I think someone like Zverev, you know, to describe that as a big mistake of his career is correct, Uh, and I think that's fair because certainly makes me look at him slightly differently. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's there's always tantrums, isn't there? I, I remember, like, I think it was maybe it was Eugenie or someone like that. He used to just, like, smack his head against his racket. And, and Murray did the same thing. Like, then you'd start bleeding. You're like, yeah, you might have taken it a bit too far here. Um, <laughs> but but take take Djokovic, for example, uh, at the US Open last year, um, you know, mm. hitting a ball really hard. You don't know what's going to happen. So you, you do have to, I know it's tense, it's pressure. You can't expect people to act perfectly admirably all the time but at the same time if you're in a top 10 in the world and you're on the front stage all the time maybe you should have to act uh, admirably at all times um the same goes for now bandy and all those years ago I was just at Queens. Say, yeah, yeah yeah oh that was horrible especially because of the the nature of that injury so, was just very gory exactly yeah, so take David Nalbandian, for example, um, in that final. I think this was against uh, Marin Cilic. Nalbandian was actually up. He was winning. He had a little tantrum. He decided to kick. Um, basically, they had these little boxes around the line, uh, the lines judges' chairs. He decided to kick that box, um, thinking it was probably more stable than it was. Yeah, uh, that, that obviously went straight into the line judges' uh, leg and gave him quite a nasty gash. Um, rightfully so. Regardless of the scoreline being in Nalbandian's favour, he was disqualified, and Chilich won Queens as a result. So, yeah, like it is, it's understandable to have frustrations, but you kind of you have to. The the thing that annoys me is just when people don't learn. Like you can still yeah. you can still have that fire in your belly, but be able to keep it somewhat in check. Like I don't mind players, you know, like uh, throwing on the, the racket on the floor. Like that that's okay. Like a, a couple of times, that's fine. Just. Yeah, don't don't like smash an umpire's chair or like hurl your tennis racket where you have no idea where it's going. Things like that just are just a bit too. I've got to I've got to disagree. Actually, I oh. think even hurling a racket at the floor, I think that's too much. And I I'm not saying you can't show emotion. We all need to show that we're human, especially these top players, because it gives people more of a perspective related to their own game and their own everyday experience of tennis. But for example, you've got a grass court. Take a grass court for example, a grass court season people work very hard all year round to make sure that that's one of the best grass courts on the planet and that it's almost perfect in a, as a surface. So you make a dent in that and it makes a difference. Oh, so hurt, like I say, this is it. So I, I think you have to be careful of that sort of thing. I'm a big fan of whacking my racket against my shoe. That doesn't okay. really hurt anyone. We'll say that's acceptable and maybe just like, breaking it over your knee or something like Stan's done in the past like uh, wow yeah I can, oh I can yeah that, that was that was oh, quite incredible it also happened during the um uh, Davis Cup 
uh, finals, or no, not maybe but Davis Cup anyway. I can't, it was a British player that did exactly the same thing, made it look effortless. It's ridiculous. It's almost like a like a low key flex. You can just like bend your racket like that. It's weird. It's not bend. He snapped it in half. Weird, weird alpha move that. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, yeah, you can have you can you can get emotional, but just like try and keep it under a, a little bit of a lid and try and just like learn from from these kind of moments. Otherwise, oh yeah, absolutely. If, if people don't learn from these things. Time for a bit of tennis trivia. Maybe the most dull quiz name in the history of tennis quizzes, but you know we'll go with that for now. It's early days of this podcast, Ben. I reckon we can uh, we can come up with a better name and, and bring it to our viewers soon it is. enough. We're at the grassroots. Anyway, this week it's five questions for me, so it's time for a bit of payback. I think for Merlin. Let's, let's oh, see it's time for some payback. Well, I actually realised from last week that some of the questions you gave me weren't that bad at all. Problem is, I don't really have a great deal of knowledge from previous generations. I keep up with current quite a lot, but I don't study the history books. Speaking of which, some of today's questions might take us back a few centuries. So... Um, Sorry, what? Centuries? Oh, yes. I mean, I don't think think that's quite fair. I should have put some guidelines in place for this. God. Yeah, we're going to be talking about who won Wimbledon in 1879. No, that is a joke. That is not going to be the case. Do not worry. In which um, case, I reckon, finished and I give up. I reckon you'll be absolutely fine, but what I've tried to do is create some questions that it's niche knowledge, um, but I think this is something that you know everyone pays well to know. Um, anyway, what, so five questions. Is that what your teacher says when you're about to go into an exam that you're ill-prepared for? It's going to be fine. Yeah. It is going to be fine. It I'm is going to be fine. anyway so five questions if you if you get them right then well done to you if you get one wrong then you will be told to get a grip because that is the name uh, the namesake of this podcast anyway so first question we're going to talk about the fastest serve record on the men's atp tour so if you can just give me the name of this individual then you'll get all the points, or the point. Um, but if you can tell me any other details, then then absolutely fantastic. But you'll get them afterwards anyway. Okay, so fastest serve on the men's ATP tour. Yeah. I feel like yeah, I yeah, yeah. Know if this is too obvious, but I'm going to go with Andy Roddick. Get a grip. That is unfortunately not even close. So Andy Roddick has been known in the past to produce some excellent speedy serves. But on this occasion, the winner for the fastest serve on the men's ATP tour is Sam Groth. Now, oh, this is yeah. a player that isn't um, isn't necessarily playing at the complete t- uh, top 10, top 20 sort of level. But on the, it, this, was, uh, this was actually a record he stole from Ivo Karlovic. We all know Ivo Karlovic, the big brute that he is, yeah. smashing down serves. He and John Isner often compete in this regard, um, alongside the likes of um, Anderson. But anyway, Sam Groff stole this record from Ivo Karlovic in 2012 in Busan, which is an ATP challenger event. So obviously it's not something we're going to hear about as much as we would uh, with other things. But the, the speed, do you want to take a guess at where the speed is? Um, I'm going to say 160 It's not a question for the... T- 160. Mm, miles an hour. Yeah, so he, so he clocked it in at 163.4 miles per hour. So... For any for anyone that's uh, keeping track of this, the pretty much the standard 
first serve speed is going to be between 130 and 140 on the men's tour um oh, that's first that. serve speed like, as well I not even that closer to like 120 probably yeah but i'm, I'm talking about those those top numbers yeah, uh, yeah. you'll see between 130 and 140 and commentators shoulder. will tell you that is a fast serve but this this is something else anyway so we know that you've got zero out of one so far ben thank you for same question me. I'm going to ask the same question, but for the women's tour. Okay. Can you give me the name of the individual who has the fastest serve on the women's tour? And if you can tell me the speed, then good luck to you. It's not going to be another challenger thing, is it? Or you just curveball me? Is it, is it fairly obvious? Because I think I know the answer, but it feels a bit obvious. She is, she is uh, or she was a very impressive player during her time. She's not currently playing on the singles tour, um, I believe, anymore, or not very much, at least. Um, but yes. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I was going to go with Serena Williams, but that is not my answer now. Um, I will. I will tell you that she is my favourite women's player that I've ever watched. That doesn't. That doesn't help. <laughs> no, because okay. I haven't told you um, who that is before. Ooh, I really don't know, so I'm just going to go with Amelie Moresmo. Unfortunately, get a grip. This is embarrassing. The the winner of this accolade is Sabine Lezicki. So oh. the German has clocked her fastest serve in at 132 miles per hour, and this was in 2014 uh, at the Bank of the West Classic. So it's interesting to see, obviously, that there is about a 30 mile an hour difference between the top speeds of the men's and the women's tours. That is a conversation for a completely other day and one to be carefully trodden on. I was going to rebuttal um, that, actually, but we can talk about that another time. But but it is an interesting perspective to take when we talk about tennis, but but not 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 in any way that's um, you know going to be criticised. It is just a fair point to make about sport of this type, um, and and how it impacts the style of game and what you see. And also, we can talk about some of the contentious topics that surround it. Yeah, I'm quite but anyway I'm quite impressed that it is Lizicki actually, because if I remember correctly, she wasn't she wasn't the tallest player around. She, I mean, she was no. strong, but. That, I mean, Very that strong. shows you that, you know, technique does go a long way. But anyway, that's a, that's a topic for... Absolutely. Uh, the size of your guns are absolutely not what determines power in tennis. Um, but no, Sabine Lezicki was, was always my favourite uh, tennis player on the tour, um, uh, on the women's tour at least. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's sad that we don't really see much of her for, from now on. But um, Unfortunately, my other favourite has also uh, stopped playing as frequently, and that was Jeannie Bouchard, another Canadian. Mm. Anyway, like her for that... her tennis or for other reasons? Uh, absolutely, the tennis, Ben. Don't be disgusting. That is the correct answer. At least someone's got an answer yeah, correct yeah. so far. Anyway, so we know you've got zero out of two. Um, so now let's see if we can get something for the third question. So... Who is the only player in history, I reckon you might get this, the only player in history, both from the men and women's tours, to win a golden Grand Slam? This is all four Grand Slams and Olympic gold in the same calendar year. From either men or women, okay. Is... So we know, that, we know that it's not on the men's tour because... Yeah, yeah, yeah I know that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is this uh how recent is this? I need I need some help here. It's not recent. It's not recent. 
okay, that's very vague. Is there is there kind of like a decade that you could pre two thousand? You're being very tight-lipped. I mean, I did give you some clues last, but you are really, really getting. That's about the same here. same level of clues as uh, as okay. you gave me. Uh, let's go with Steffi Graf. Yeah, and you've done it. Come well on. done. That is an excellent answer. Yeah, it could only be Steffi Graf. Um, interestingly enough, this is why I didn't give you too much of a clue because I thought this was a fairly um, well signposted question based on the impressiveness. Um, it could only be Steffi Graf. She is also the only player to have won each of the four Grand Slams, um, uh, or well, four times or more. So she's won each Grand Slam four times or more, um, whereas no other player in history has ever done that. She won each of them four times or more, really. Yeah, so she is she is the most consistent across all mm. of the different courts. Um, okay. But anyway, well done. You've got one out of three. All right, at least at least. Drawn. So, fourth question. Now this is a contentious one, and I will give you a point if you exp if you can tell me one of the possible explanations. This isn't a clear cut answer this is not a or b but it is of debate so if you give me one of the two main speculations you may get a point for this okay, i didn't realize we were in English so class. why is the score system in tennis the way it is and when i talk about the score system i'm talking 15 30 40 and game so we're talking about a game score here well i think that you've spoken to me about this before um, I definitely so have. This is my way of I... basically hanging you out to dry if this is wrong. Um, so wasn't it based on a clock face time initially? Is that, okay. is that close? That is one of the two possible explanations. So well yeah. done. You get the question points. But this is more of a topic for discussion than anything else. Now, as you, as you'll know, I like to I like to talk about history a little bit um, from time to time. Um, the origin of tennis is something that we're, we're really not that sure of. Um, and the origin of the score is even more shady. So obviously the clock face idea was, um, was a, a, a touted suggestion. Um, the idea that obviously at quarter past, half past and quarter two on a, on a clock um, might be the inclination for the scoring in tennis. Obviously this was suggested that 45 uh, the quarter two mark was then changed to 40 at some time. Problem is, we know that something resembling tennis existed before the 1500s and clock faces didn't exist until the 1500s in Europe, at least. Um, as for anywhere else, it's not certain. So this is the standard clock face. We're not talking about sundials or anything like that. Um, so the other possible example, and I personally, if I was going to be in a camp, I would be in this camp, um, is originally there was a game uh, in France named uh, Jeu de Palme. Now, Jeu de Palme basically means game of hands. Um, and basically, then there weren't any rackets. Rackets were introduced later, but players would basically play tennis with their hands. Um, and each side of the net was 45 feet in length so it's 90 feet in total mm. um, so every time you won a point you would move 15 feet further forwards however 15 feet further forwards 30 30 feet further forwards wow that is a nice tongue twister with f's um and 40 
was chosen because obviously 45 would have meant they were standing on the net. So 40 became it because then they were just in front of the net in that volley position for Jeu de Pont. So I, I reckon that's probably the most likely exclam- exclamation, exclamation. <laughs> I can't talk anymore. I mean, you are um, definitely a researcher. The amount of time you've put into researching these questions is just a little bit more than what I did. So I'll give you your credit there. I'll tell you what, I didn't need to research that for today because um, it's something that uh, is covered in a book called The Short History of Tennis. Um, I will I will I try and get the myself. author's name and pop that in the comments at some point. Um, it's a book that was given to me because obviously people know I like tennis um, as a present. But uh, yeah, it, it's covered largely within that book, um, which is which is very, very useful. Um, but no, it's, it's interesting to know the origins of these things because it helps you gain an understanding of how the game has developed over the years. Forget the last 30 years in the open era, for example. Over the hundreds of years, tennis has existed and has been enjoyed. So that's two out of four. Very good. You've beaten my record. Let's see if you can get the fifth one. So we're going to go a little more technical now and obviously to the recent um, developments within the game. So the grip of a tennis racket is an octagon. Uh, If anyone didn't know this already, why? Oh, my God. Um that is that is going to show me up here big time is it has it been octagonal in shape um even in the wooden racket era has it always been that way yeah Mm. yeah yeah yeah. if you go back far enough um yeah quite originally it was mostly octagonal in shape i need to give some kind of answer but i don't know what to say Uh, (laughs) that is correct you do need to give (laughs) some kind of answer i don't know because I'll give, I'll give you a small clue. I'll give you a small clue. That was going to be my clue. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know what else. Think to add about to that. what's the, what's the name of the thing we're discussing. Yeah, handle. Handle. I didn't say handle. Well, grip. Is that what you said? To make it. I don't know. Hint, 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 hint. To make it more like that was the optimal shape for fitting a hand like in terms of like oh, grip you're and friction. nearly there you're nearly there oh I, nearly I've, there. I've definitely got this wrong so just tell me what it is <laughs> okay so we'll leave you at two out of five so well done for your uh for beating me you had to add one a grip point. question in didn't you because it's called get a grip yeah. but well done exactly so exactly funny. the final question had to be a bit of a pun based on the name of our podcast but the reason for the octagonal grip is simply friction, is how good it made the grip of the grip, if that makes sense. So quite simply, if you had a square grip, that would actually hurt your hand, especially if you're hitting lots of tennis balls all the time because you'd have a lot of sharp edges. Uh, But if you had a circular grip, then you can imagine that if you're trying to use one of the the determined grips with which we use for different shots in tennis, the continental, the semi-western, the eastern grips, then you wouldn't be able to hold it properly because it would slip around in your hand. So basically, it's just to increase friction. Mm. I would have taken increased grip as the answer if you would have said that, um, but nice and simple. In fact, if you go to a lot of science museums, especially uh, the Toronto Science Museum, you can even test how strong your grip strength is on these uh, on these little machines. It's just how hard you squeeze it. 
like I say, you know, everyone's got quite strong grip, but when something's hitting your hand, it's quite hard to readjust in that split second. So, um, yeah, like the octagonal grip is the optimal um, shape for that. There you go. You learn something new every day. Not sure how, how Absolutely. useful that is for just general life, but it's something. I'll take it. Absolutely. All right. So two out of five then. So I've upped you two by one. Two out of five. Well done. I think You've nudged me by one. Going forward, we will probably make it multiple choice, um, just so that we don't look completely idiotic. And <laughs> I think one out of five and two out of five is not the kind of percentages we want to go for, really. We want to be pushing like... No, not really. Not really. Showing us up to be slightly fraudulent, given that we're doing a tennis podcast and we, we know relatively little about tennis. It's the structure of the questions, isn't it? It's the structure of the it questions. Is. Anyway, that uh, that wraps up for today's podcast. Um, thank you for listening, if anyone is actually listening, given that this is only the second episode. Um, and well done for putting up with our voices for so long, if you have even stayed this long. <laughs>